Uh, they had a special song for us today. Uh, that was a song by Coldplay, uh, which is called God Put a Smile Upon Your Face. Uh, Coldplay, whether you like them or not, uh, they wrote this song in 2003 when they were on the verge of breaking into one of the most successful decades in modern music history. Uh, Coldplay in the 2000s spent more time on the top 40 charts across the world than any other band or musical artist in the world. And in 2003, they wrote this song, God Put a Smile Upon Your Face, on another record-breaking album, which was called Rush of Blood to the Head. God Put a Smile Upon Your Face was not necessarily one of like the headliners, but for Coldplay fans out there, they, they found relatability to this. They, they thought that it was beautiful. They thought that it was powerful. It became one of their underrated hits. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be real with you. When I was in high school, Coldplay was my jam. I mean, like, Viva La Vida came, and I'm like, doom, 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 doom. Half of you are like, yeah. The other half of you are like, whoa, you know. But uh, this was a song that, that hit me deep, um, even in high school. And as I reflect over the lyrics now, I think that maybe it hits me deeper even today. Uh, Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, he's on record as saying that we cannot rely on our talent as musicians in order to get people to listen to our music as a band. He said instead they rely on their relatability. And I think that it's true. You can relate to their lyrics. Chris Martin, who was on the verge of breaking into one of the most successful decades in modern music, wrote this. Where do we go? Nobody knows. I've got to say, I'm on my way down. Does he sound like somebody who has it all? Does he sound like somebody who's wildly popular? Does he sound like somebody who's got it made? I think a lot of us in our lives, we have an order, right? We've got a checklist of items, and if we could check those off in the right order, then we could say, I've got my security. I've got my joy. But what he's saying is, I see everything that I have, and I still feel like I'm going down. I feel like I'm sinking, and then he finishes that first verse with, God, give me style and give me grace. God, put a smile upon my face. What's he saying? Everything in this world, as nice as it may be, it will not give me security. Instead, what I need is grace and I need joy. Now, I don't think that maybe the band Coldplay was intentionally trying to be theological about this, but I can't help it. You'll recognize these words on the next slide if you've been around Hope lately. Within the last six months, I showed you these words. This is Karis and Kara. Everybody say Karis. Now say Kara. They look very similar. That is because Karis is the root word for Kara. Karis means grace, and kara means joy. And since joy is from the root word that is karis, what biblical readers, what the original audience and listeners and readers and, and, and hearers of the biblical text and speeches that were given in real life from the, word, from the mouth of Jesus himself, they would have understood that joy only comes from grace. Joy, security only comes from grace. And that is entirely countercultural. We're in a series that's called Say What? And we're looking at some of the shocking things that Jesus said. This is something that Jesus stood for, and it's shocking. That joy only comes from grace. We believe that joy and security comes from things that you can earn and work for, right? But that can't be true. Because joy cannot be touched. And the things that can be touched are the things that we have to work for. The things that we have to try to hold on to. Let me try to explain it like this. So, um, I don't like to necessarily admit this, but uh, so like I, I rent go-karts often. And when I say I rent go-karts often, I mean that uh, me and my friends, 
uh, approaching 30, we'll travel down to a place where 11-year-olds have their birthday parties, and we ride speedy mobiles for like 10 laps, right? I love it so much that this is my wedding day. Um, that's me in second place because on my wedding day, my brother wouldn't let me win. He's terrible, no. Um, and that was the first of many, right? Like, we've probably gone back like 20 times. I had to start to slow down. Because the thing is, is as much fun as I have there, I have this sense of like anxiety in me when I'm racing. It's not because I'm scared. I have no fear, all right? I will drive that thing as fast as I can. But my fear and my anxiety comes from every single lap that I race is a lap closer to being done. This is just a rental cart. And then I have to give it back. And then because my wife and I have a deal, I cannot come back for another 60 days. <laughs> she had to have an intervention with me. <laughs> Danny, you need to stop driving go-karts. You have a car, you know. No, it didn't happen quite like that. But it's true. The things that we rent in life, we don't have security in those. The things that we have to earn, we don't have security in those. The things that can be taken away, we don't have security in those. The only thing that we can actually have true security in are the things that are given to us. Anything that you earn can be taken away from you. But something that is given to you, that is sourced out from someone else who freely shares that with you at any time, that's where you find your security. The lead singer of one of the most famous bands in modern music knows that. And a nearly 30-year-old who's recovering from a quarter-life crisis knows that because of go-kart experience. Where's your security? What are you looking to for security? I bring that up because in today's passage, it's what I think about. Security. Just before the passage that you heard this morning, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? Jesus had asked them, so who do people say that I am? They come up with like these pretty significant answers, like these pretty powerful, uh, 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 intense answers, if you will. Like, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah or these other prophets. These big, major, uh, biblical characters showing up back again in the flesh. You're here. And then Jesus narrows in on his disciples. He says, okay, who do you say I am? This is the most important question that you'll ever answer in your life. Who do you think Jesus is? What do you believe about him? We can't escape him. He's shown up everywhere. The last 2,000 years, the songs we sing, secular or not, the art we see, the conversations we have, whether we name him or not, the movies we watch, they're thematically schemed and designed around this guy. And 2,000 years ago, he really walked the earth. What do you think about him? Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? I want to know, who do you say I am? I think Jesus knew the answer that was going to come from the lips of his disciples, but I wonder if God just really loves the, uh, the sound of our voice when we speak out to him and name him for who he is. Jesus had his disciple, his name was Simon Peter. He, wasn't, he was once Simon. Jesus renamed him Peter. Kind of a long story, but nonetheless, there's Simon Peter. So if you hear Simon the disciple, Peter the disciple, there's a good chance you're hearing about Simon Peter, but you might be hearing about another Simon. So, you know, just read your Bibles closely. But nonetheless, Simon Peter was pretty good at speaking his mind. And Simon Peter said very quickly, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Boom, that's it. 
What did he really say? Well, what's a Messiah? Messiah in those days, it was the same word in the Greek, or excuse me, in the Hebrew. Uh, the Jewish language back in those days would have been either Hebrew or Aramaic. They could have spoken both. And the word that would have been used for a king was Mashiach. Everybody say Mashiach. It's the same word that we have for Messiah, some sort of protector, some sort of king, some sort of authority. But in the Jewish sense, like these uh, young men were, these Jewish uh, young men who followed Jesus around, they knew that the Messiah was something deeper than that. The spiritual Messiah, the Messiah sent from God, was a king that would free them. Jewish people in those days, they did not necessarily have it easy. They were living uh, under the rule of Roman authority. They were being unfairly taxed. They were being abused. They were being thrown off, cast out in the corner. They were kicked on. They were considered the scum of society in a lot of different circles. And so Jesus, his disciples, were like, wow, if this is the Messiah, we've got it made. I can finally climb my way to the top. And so what Simon Peter is saying is, you are my security. You are my access to freedom. Simon Peter's off to the right start. Jesus, you're my security. And Jesus responds to him. He says, aha, you're right, Simon Peter. And you heard it in the text this morning where he says, you couldn't have known this on your own, but instead this is something that God has given you. There it is. You didn't earn that knowledge. You didn't earn me into your life. You didn't earn that title for me. This is information and knowledge, and I am a gift that has been given to you. I'm something that can't be taken away. Jesus is already starting to hint toward, I am your sense of joy, or I am, I am your true source of joy. I am your real sense of security that can't be taken. Jesus continues, he says, you want to talk about security, Peter? Here's what I want to say about security when it comes to you. You are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Peter, you are going to be secure. You are going to be so secure, Peter, that you're the one that I'm choosing to build my church on. People who would have been around Peter in those days might have thought that was crazy. Peter, to them, was just the fisherman who sometimes got in fights. Later on in the text, we're going to see that Peter pulls a sword on a Roman guard when they come to, when they come to uh, arrest Jesus and he cuts off the guy's ear. If he cut off the guy's ear, what do you think he was actually aiming for? Probably not just his ear. He was a fighter. He was sporadic. He's the one who spoke his mind. He didn't think before he talked, but he just said it. People are like, Peter, the secure one? Jesus says, this isn't the kind of security that you can earn or you can develop on your own. And said, this is the kind of security that I can give you. I wonder if Peter heard that and he said, say what? <laughs> huh? I wonder if that was the most shocking thing that he thought he'd ever hear Jesus say. One of the most shocking things that I think that as readers of the Bible that we hear Jesus say is on the next slide, when Jesus says, then he sternly warned the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? Hold on a second. Anybody here ever have a problem with this? Where you're reading the Bible and you see that Jesus is known as the Messiah. Jesus performs some miracle that's going to uh, uh, reveal him. That's going to uh, show everybody like this really is the son of God. He's got this divine power. And then Jesus tells people, hey, don't tell anybody. It's confusing. And people have all these sorts of different theories for why he does that. Sure, part of it's probably strategic. Because in the Jewish establishment, they would have known about a coming Messiah. And if it wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted, a Messiah who's going to be on their side, a Messiah who's going to help them climb their ladder, they would have opposed this Messiah and said, that can't be the one. And so people say, well, maybe Jesus was just doing it strategically. Well, maybe, maybe he was. 
Jesus continues in the passage and he turns this into a bit of a lesson. Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly from that moment on, now that he's been identified for who he truly is, it's time to, it's time to go. It's time to move. It's amazing how in the books of, in, in the gospel accounts in the New Testament, especially in the book of Mark and the book of Matthew, there are these pivotal moments where people are getting to know Jesus and then Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit more and he says, all right, let's start to walk. It's as if there's an order. It's as if Jesus has his own checklist. But it's different than the checklist of other people. When we think about a Messiah, when we think about a king, we don't think about someone who's going to suffer. But Jesus says there is an order to this. Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly he would suffer. He would be killed, but on the third day he would raise from the dead. There would be an order to this. It's tough in life when there's like an order to things, right? Anybody here struggle with patience? All you have to do to know that we struggle with patience is watch somebody on their phone and they just start pounding it. My phone, what's wrong with my phone? It's a miracle what's in your hand. You know what I mean? Like it's sending messages to outer space and gets it to anywhere in the world. And if it could do that in three months, that'd be amazing. But it does it instantaneously. I'm like... I need a new provider. Man, we absolutely struggle with patience. You ever been delayed for a flight? Oh my goodness. I am never flying this airline again. Did you ever play the Oregon Trail in like sixth grade? Can you imagine that kind of travel? Oh my goodness. We struggle with patience, especially when there's an order to things. You've got to do this before you can do that. Sometimes order is put in our lives for safety. Sometimes order is put in our lives because we are not ready for the thing that's on the other side of the thing that's next in line. When I was like 13 years old, my parents said, hey, Danny, I need you to run out in the car. We were having dinner in our, in our family kitchen. Uh, outside the family kitchen, there was like a door to the garage, and outside the garage was, of course, the driveway. My parents said, okay, I need you to go out in the car. And I don't remember what it was. They said, I need you to grab something. I'm like 13 years old. And they say, okay, so here's the keys. They hand me the keys. And I never, like, I was never once even tempted to do this. But now that I had the keys in my hand and I was walking out to the house by myself, I'm like, there is nothing stopping me from driving this car. <laughs> I get out in the driveway, I get in the driver's seat, I'm sitting there for like five minutes. And I don't know why I thought that that would be a normal thing to do. I'm like, I gotta do it. I turn the engine on. I couldn't stop myself. My mom comes out the door, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I wasn't gonna drive, I just wanted to feel it. Now you know why I'm almost 30 and I'm, Still riding go-karts everywhere. <laughs> Do you ever remember like when you're in high school and did you ever set some goals for yourself? Maybe you are in high school and you're setting goals for yourself. Maybe you're younger in high school and you're thinking about goals that you have for yourself in high school. When I was a senior in high school, we had a teacher who encouraged us to have a journal. So I had a journal and I found my journal for when I was a senior in high school. And our teacher told us, I want you to write down some goals, some goals that you have for the future, things that you want to accomplish. I'm like, okay, sweet. Can I read to you some of my goals? These are funny. The first one, own a Jeep Wrangler by 25. <laughs> Nothing. Not even close. The next one, graduate with two majors, one in media, one in business, and a minor in Spanish. <sighs> Attend law school. <laughs> what? Invest in a 401k and have a retirement plan by 23. I still don't know what those words mean. 
This is the one that's funny. Be married by 40. Abby, I'm so glad you came into my life. <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes the order's quicker than you think, you know? And sometimes it's really good. But there are certain things that I'm still waiting for. I'm like, where's that Jeep? Come on. Now, I love my base model Honda HRV. It goes from zero to 60 in 10 minutes, and it's amazing. <laughs> I love that thing. But someday, it'd be nice. But there are going to have to be a lot of things that, ha I mean, a lot of things, like a different career path. But I will not be doing that. I love my job. Um, but it's hard, right? Like, there'd have to be things that happen in that order. So Simon Peter thought that he had the step in line to get to where he wanted to be. He thought he had his security for his plan. So how do you think Simon Peter felt when he heard his Messiah, his king, the one who's supposed to be his security, is going to die and suffer? Well, the text tells us, it says that Simon Peter responded, Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. When was the last time that you tried to take control over a situation that you couldn't take control over? When was the last time that someone who knew better than you was trying to tell you out of love what to do and you just wouldn't listen? I think sometimes it might look about like this. Proceed straight. Well, we're 0 for 6. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club. Other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know? You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwight. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 no, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right, it said take a right. No, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's well, a lake there. I think it knows where it is going. This is the, the machine knows. This is the lake. Stop yelling at me. No, it's Stop not yelling. yelling. There's no road here. Remain calm. I have trained for this. <laughs> that, that clip is a little deeper than I thought. He's saying things about life and, and sometimes feeling like it's just this vain experience. You know, we just live and we die and... Dwight is trying to care for his friend Michael Scott in the funniest show in the history of television, in my opinion. I might be right. I might be wrong. I don't know. And Michael just can't resist, right? I've got the plan I'm sticking to. I've got the order. And it wasn't good for him. Jesus says immediately to Simon Peter, you're out of order. You're out of line. Here's the big say what moment of the story. Jesus looks at Peter Arguably his best friend. And he says, get behind me, Satan. What if your friend called you Satan? <laughs> what? Jesus uh, talks to people in very different ways, right? Like to the outcast, to the marginalized person, Jesus is very compassionate, very gentle. To the ostracized, he loves them, and he welcomes them, and he cares for them. To the sick, he heals them. To the lonely, he provides company to them. To the hyper-religious and legalistic, Jesus is stern. To his disciples, Jesus is sometimes stern. As if to say, you should know better. But nowhere in the Bible 
Nowhere in any of the New Testament stories about Jesus does Jesus ever look at someone and say, Satan. Oh my goodness. I mean, you have a hard time just thinking about naming anybody in your life Satan. Like, oh my God. But Jesus says to Peter, you're out of line, Satan. You're looking out for yourself. See, Jesus is a gift. But there's something special about the gift of Jesus. You remember when you came downstairs on your birthday and you're so excited because you know every single one of those presents is going to say your name? It's not a gift like that. I think that a lot of times in life we think that gifts are made to elevate us, right? We're not happy being down low. No, like nobody is, right? Nobody. Everybody wants to make their way to the top. So okay, I took the step. I'm in the order. I'm doing what I need to do. I worked really hard. I got the grades. Oh my goodness, how high is he going to go? Not any higher, I promise. And I think that Jesus sees Peter doing this. Peter, you're just trying to get above everybody else. There's a problem with that. Sometimes we want to get away from here because we think like, like we're lonely. I think that we feel lonely in this place because we don't want to talk to anybody about being down low. Maybe if we would open those conversations, we'd realize there's actually a lot more people down here than there are up here. And so it makes so much sense why God, in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus did not see equality with God as something to take advantage of for himself, but instead he gave up his divine privileges and he comes down to be with us, to open up the conversation with humanity. See, you don't have to think that you're lonely anymore. Your life... The order of your life is not for you to get to the top. It's for you to follow Jesus. So Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're out of order. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has this famous experience where he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. Satan tempts Jesus three different times, and at the end, Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. You're out of order. What was Satan tempting him with? Think about the big temptation. First, there's the food. Jesus, come on, just, you're, you're hungry. He had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. You must be hungry. Come on, eat something, eat something. Turn, these, turn the, these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And then Satan says to Jesus, okay, well, if God loves you so much, he would never let you hurt. So let's go ahead and take you up high. And even if you fell down, he would protect you, right? He would save you, the scriptures say. He'd protect you and he'd save you. Jesus says, you're misinterpreting scripture. You're getting it wrong. Do not test the Lord your God, Jesus says. The word of God just... Jesus is the word of God, as it tells us in John chapter 1. And so it's not like he's just reciting. He's simply speaking his existence. And then one more time, Satan says, okay, here's how we really tempt, right? Here's what I can really get people with. So he thinks he can get Jesus with it too. He takes him up to a high point. He says, look it out over all of creation. I'll give it all to you right now. You can skip the suffering. You can skip the death. You can skip the cross. You just have to bow down to me. And Jesus says, you are out of order. You're out of line. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus, uh, I do believe, has a very compassionate heart for us. 
But I also think that Jesus is so compassionate and caring and loving for us that when we are so far out of line, he will say what he needs to say to get our attention. God will do anything to stop you from climbing up to wobbly ta- a wobbly ladder that you think is going to give you everything you want, but eventually it just leaves you alone. And to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Sometimes I wonder, like, I get it. I don't have the power to actually win God over with my temptation, like the bad stuff. But how often am I trying to tempt God? Ah. <sighs> God, I have this like really, really in-depth, detailed plan for my life and I need you to bless it. Do it. God might be calling you to something else. Maybe God's calling you into a a new relationship, out of relationship. God's calling you uh, to serve somewhere, uh, into a new career. Maybe God's not calling you into a new career. Maybe God's calling you to stay put. No, I'm so focused on that thing. God, get over here and bless it now. You're out of order. How do you feel when people get out of order around you? Who here was at the Iowa-Iowa State game last week? Anybody? Anybody here try to stand in line for corn dogs or anything? So the line was about this long when I got to it. Um, (laughs) And uh, it was bad. It was very bad. You can go to the next screen. And um, as I'm standing there in line, I notice, like, I'm not getting any closer because some people don't realize where the end of the line is. And there are some people in the line who are just furious, you know. Hey, end of the line, buddy. And I'm like, no, no, I'm cool. I'm calm. I'm cool. I'm calm. But then comes a Hawkeye fan. (laughs) Steps right in front of me. I'm like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, it didn't go exactly like that. But like, there is an order. And now there's a difference between the line that Jesus is talking about, the line that we're talking about. I was in a line that I was trying to get to the front of. Jesus is leading a line into freedom. There's a difference between the lines that we stand in and the line that Jesus leads. But Jesus says, I got to be in front. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. That's another say what moment. To us, we hear cross and we think spiritual. In those days, Jesus hadn't been hung on a cross yet. It wasn't the symbol of Jesus dying for their sins. It was execution. When they heard that, they heard, if you want to follow me, sign your death warrant. What? Jesus says, I got to follow your, I've got to lead your line. And if you're going to follow me, You're going to have to go where I go. How often do we misunderstand Jesus about where he's going and where he's leading us? How often do we expect God to come into our life and fix everything? How often do we expect God to come into our life and resurrect everything but expect there to be no death? There is not resurrection without death. God is going to bring a resurrection for all of creation, but resurrection does not happen, first and foremost, the death of Jesus Christ. And he says, I will lead that line. And so if we go back to that verse that we looked at earlier today, where it said, then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why is he saying, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah yet? He's saying it because you'll misrepresent me. Until you know that the places where I go will sometimes be scary, will sometimes be low, will sometimes be difficult, will sometimes feel out of order for you, but know that they're in order for me. You got to know me first. 
How often is it that we're hearing Christians say things like, if you believe, you'll achieve. Pray and it'll happen. Like, let me tell you this. If you follow Jesus, you cannot avoid the cross. But if you follow Jesus, you will receive resurrection. Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That word for life that's used there, it's all over the place in that text. And it, it, it's suke. Everybody say suke. It's where, the, where we get the word for psyche. Um, and what it, what it quite literally means, um, according to Dr. Eugene Peterson, who's an incredibly respected both Hebrew and Greek scholar, um, has his own translation paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He says, it's your true life. Your true self. How often are people trying to find their true selves? Because that would be security, right? If I could just find my true self. How many of us are struggling in that? Not many of us admit it, do we? Um, There's a psychologist who uh, specifically specializes um, in the the category of self-awareness. Knowing yourself. And uh, what she wrote was that 95% of people that she studied and surveyed say that they are self-aware. But according to her medical expert opinion in the studies and surveys and researching that she's done, she's found that only 10 to 15% of people actually are self-aware. The number one reason for that, she said, is because people are seeking self-awareness on their own. It looks like this. I know how I'll get a good view of myself. It'll be a view of myself that I like. All this does is it gives you a view of everybody else, but it doesn't actually give you a view of yourself. One other thing that uh, this psychologist, her, her name is Tasha Yurik, um, she said that one of the biggest things that we have in our lives are blind spots. And nobody can avoid having a blind spot. The only way that you're going to become self-aware is by having people around you. There's a, there's a filter on some app on my phone where I looked at, and it reverses your image so you can see what you really look like to other people instead of like the mirror image on your phone. So I'm like, oh, I wonder what I look like to other people. I'm like, ah! I put my phone in my back pocket. I don't recognize that person. It's, it's odd. Sometimes you, like, you don't recognize yourself because you don't have the same view of yourself as other people do. Now, I get it. You should not listen to every single voice of people who try to tell you who you are. But the people who love you, the people who care about you, now, most specifically, the God who created you, you ought to listen to that voice. We ought to be humble and know that there is a caring, compassionate God who says, I want so much for your life than a lonely ladder. Come down. Be around people. Open up the conversation with God and with the rest of humanity. Jesus tells us, or he asks the, the question that we all need to ask ourselves. I'm going to come back to this slide in just a second, but first let me go to the next slide really quickly. Is anything worth more than your soul? And the word for soul there again is suke. Is anything worth more than your soul? 
here's what it looks like to have a soul that is self-aware, that is secure. Not self-aware by your own observations, but self-aware because of what God has said about you. Let's take a look at that. So if we go back one slide. Security in Jesus. The first is you have awareness. That's Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. It's knowing, like, okay, I'm seeing what's around me. It's, it's Peter saying to Jesus, you are the Messiah. There's confidence. There's endurance. Even when I follow Jesus, knowing that I'm going to run into a cross, I know that I will also receive resurrection. And then there's joy that is untouchable. It might exist inside the same spaces, as anxiety and depression, but the anxiety and depression don't get to touch the joy. Sometimes it even sings kind of a duet with those things, right? But those things don't get to touch it because you have that security. Here's how secure it is. Jesus asks you, is anything in the world worth more than your soul? Any prize at the top of the ladder, is any of it worth more than your soul? And maybe some of us are like, maybe. Here's how valuable Jesus thought your soul was. Because of the joy awaiting Jesus, Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus had joy. And he was willing to endure whatever he needed to endure to get that joy. The confidence of a God walking into the world who says, I know nothing can touch me. I might exist in the same places where those things exist because this world is an imperfect world, but the creator of the universe has come down the ladder, showed up in our spaces because he's aware of what you need. And what he has to offer. There is nothing, according to God, there is nothing more valuable than your soul. I think we ought to thank God for that. I think we ought to thank God for paying whatever price he needed to pay to get our soul. When we maybe sometimes didn't feel like it was that valuable. When we maybe felt like it was okay leaving it down here so that we could chase the things that were on the top. Maybe when we didn't put that same value in our soul, but instead we put the value on our dream. Have you ever thought about this? The thing that you're chasing in life, the thing that you believe will make your life complete, will not last as long as your eternal soul. The thing that you believe if you could get it would make you, will someday come to an end. But your soul, you, because of the infinite loving gift of Jesus, his grace that brings you joy that is untouchable, you will outlast anything you could chase. So follow Jesus. Stay in his line and see the joy that he has to offer you. I want to stand now and sing and just thank God for this. And we've got a song that's appropriate for that. Amen. Amen.